Two kinds of bacon and all kinds of delicious. Say hello to Donato's new Bacon Duo pizzas. Two pizzas, each with two kinds of bacon. Try the new Pepperoni Bacon Duo with pepperoni, Canadian bacon, and hardwood smoked bacon. And the Chipotle Bacon Duo with Canadian bacon and Chipotle seasoned bacon. Now get $2 off a large Bacon Duo or any large pizza. Use promo code 2. Donato's. Every piece is important. Donato's just didn't add bacon to their pizzas. They added bacon to their bacon. It's Donato's new Bacon Duo pizzas. Two pizzas, each with two kinds of bacon. Try the new Pepperoni Bacon Duo with pepperoni, Canadian bacon, and hardwood smoked bacon. And the Chipotle Bacon Duo with Canadian bacon and Chipotle seasoned bacon. Now get $2 off a large Bacon Duo or any large pizza. Use promo code 2. Donato's. Every piece is important. It's been 17 years that I've been clean, but I still carried that shame. And then now I'm like, yeah, I can talk to you about those darkest moments of my life because they don't define me as a person. Like what defines me as a person is like what I have done to grow since then. I think that's like we get so caught up on sort of being afraid of being defined by our failures and like really failures are an opportunity to build our character and we become who we are because of how we build ourselves up after failure. Persian Girl Podcast. Season two. Is this our first episode of 2020? No. We had an episode. 2020 has been a lost year for me so far. I'm not sure what's going on. I know. I'm not sure where where I am, (laughs) what month it is. Is it still January? It's still January. January feels like it's lasting a really long time. (laughs) Are you sure it's not February? (laughs) (laughs) Almost. Um, Well, speaking of February, we're here with Erin Carr today whose book Strung Out is coming out February 5th, 2020, 25th, oh my god, February 25th, and it's a memoir about her 15-year battle with opiate addiction, and she is also a writer, and her work has been featured in several publications like Mary Claire, Self, Cosmopolitan, there's like a whole list, um, and then you also run a weekly advice column, Ask Erin, which is can be found on Ravishly, which I was reading before you got here. Um, so Basically, she does everything, and I feel so small next to her right now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no. So thank you for coming on to the podcast. Yes, Thanks thank for you for taking me. the time to be with us today. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> it's funny how we met, actually, because she, Erin came to speak at a in my journalism class taught by uh, Sue Shapiro, and I asked you, like, I just came and asked you if you would wanted to come on the podcast. And I thought you were going to be like, uh, no, I don't have time. And you were like, yes. I'm like, what? <laughs> why? Why? Like, like, it's fun. Like, can I know why you said yes to being with us? I, I, I need to know, like, why, we, why would you want to hang out with us? Well, I mean, 
I was really excited because of the, you know, the subject matter of your podcast, because I don't really get to talk that much about my identity as a Persian. So I was really excited about that. And, you know, we had the connection of like, you were also from LA. And so I was very excited about the prospect of talking about that, like intersection of identity and... No, exactly. Well, maybe tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So um, my father is Persian. My mother is Swedish American. I grew up in Los Angeles. I've been uh, in New York now back again for like seven years. And um, I grew up back and forth between LA and New York because my dad moved here when I was about seven. So um, that's my background in terms of like location and (laughs) ethnicity. Um, I really wouldn't peg you as Persian. Really? Like, looking at you, yeah. Oh, I I mean, I get, like, so many different things. So do I, honestly. People can't, yeah. like, I, when I lived in France, nobody thought I was Persian. So many people thought I was Italian. I can yeah. see that, actually. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, they just, and I don't know if they thought that, nobody thought that I spoke, they could tell I had an accent, but nobody thought that I had an American accent when I spoke French. So they just thought I was from, like, Italy, I guess. <laughs> you know, what's I funny? get the same reaction when I'm in France. Yeah, so not that I've spent like a lot. Of time right. There, yeah. It's that, no. I just I didn't <laughs> oh, yes, have that. So and there are quite a few Persians actually that live have over the years lived in in France. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, a lot of Persian culture was influenced yep. by French, and there's a lot of there's words a lot of words like yes, merci, yeah, ascenseur, ascenseur. Yeah. I actually didn't know that was French until recently when I went back to France. Now that I'm a little older, and I was like, oh, ascenseur is French. I right. Mean, pre-revolution <laughs> Iran was so like wannabe French. Yes. Like, let's in yeah. a good way. Like yeah, the fashion, everything. This is like at least yeah. what my parents tell me. It's mm-hmm. funny though in regards to accents. Mm-hmm. For me, like. I speak fluent Hebrew, but I have an American accent. And recently I told my mom, people always think I'm Brazilian, but Brazilian guys only want to talk to Brazilian girls. Uh So when they come up to me and I say I'm not, they walk away. (laughs) So I told my mom, like, okay, I'm going to learn how to say yes, but I don't speak Portuguese in Portuguese. And then I'm saying it. My mom's like, you're you're speaking Portuguese with an Israeli accent, but you speak Hebrew with an American accent. (laughs) You make no sense. (laughs) But, But yeah, like, I guess for you when you spoke French like you just didn't have an American accent you also don't you don't look as what you are like if right. you could be a chameleon in that way because you could just be whatever Pe- you want people can would never quite pin what I am they you know it's and I uh you know they just think I mean they definitely think like okay I'm not like just like all American yeah <laughs> they you know just sort of pin me as this generic other but um, ethnically ambiguous yes yes exactly <laughs> which is like kind of it. like what we're all becoming in some ways you know yeah. Yeah. so I mean yeah they just know that I'm I have some background that is not strictly you know Anglo-European um, well I mean before we started recording we were talking about how like just being Persian isn't limited to just speaking the language right. and you had like a very non-traditional life mm-hmm. and I guess let's get into that and we'll we'll later explore like how your father was involved and mm-hmm. what his reaction was because I feel like that's what every all the listeners yes yes <laughs> it's so crazy um not I'm not trying to be like desensitize but um I was reading an opioid uh like addiction statistic mm-hmm. and apparently like 130 people a day overdose yes on opioids just on opioids yeah in america so you were really young Mm -hmm. like the first time you tried so do you want to sure so i mean the first time i tried uh an opiate was i was eight and it was sort of 
I mean, Wait, it was somewhat accidental. Like, oh, no, no, it was, it was AI. AI. It the grandma. Was... Yeah, I, I try. I found I was having like a panic attack. I didn't know it was a panic attack. I didn't have that language for it. But um, it was after my parents had separated, and I was sort of having a panicky episode. And I went into the bathroom, and I don't even know why. I opened the medicine cabinet, and there was an expired bottle of Darvaset, which is an opiate. I didn't know what it was. I just saw that there was like a label on it that said may cause drowsiness, and that appealed to me because I just like I just wanted to not be conscious I wanted to be asleep so I took one not knowing what it would do and I really liked how it made me feel um, because it felt like it gave me a buffer between me and the rest of the world and so over the next few years I definitely you know I wasn't like popping pills all the time but anytime I was in someone's bathroom I would kind of like look and see if they had anything and I think you know I mean I'm old enough that I don't even think they were like childproof <laughs> you know like uh um lids on them yeah, I don't I mean I, I can't really oh, remember I also may like have that? I yeah, also may have maybe I was old enough I was like probably like you know eight nine years old ten years old when I started doing that I may have been able to figure it out anyway but um yeah so I started stealing pills and then when I was 13 like 10 days after my 13th birthday was the first time that I tried heroin, which is very young. Um, and I always explain it, explain addiction in the in terms of, you know, the, the addiction started before the drugs were there, right? So there's the impulse there to escape and to exit reality was already raging before I was offered the drug, which is why it's hard for people to understand why someone would like make that kind of decision. I had never even been drunk. I had never smoked pot, you know. I just wanted any sort of exit from reality. Yeah, I didn't even think about it while reading the book. Mm-hmm. When you first tried heroin, you probably were never even drunk before. I never no. like I never thought of it that way. Mm-mm. I had maybe had like you know I probably tried a sip of wine yeah. at like a special dinner or something, but no, I had never been drunk. You know, after reading your book, like recently when I'm looking at kids mm-hmm. and then thinking about things that I know that have happened to me or mm-hmm. other people I know when they were so young. I look at kids so differently because yeah. you think that they're so innocent, but it's like they're just so good at being secretive. Right. There's so much going on in their lives. Yeah. And like I just look at them so differently. When I was like driving down the street in Manhattan, I just saw a group of like what looked like probably nine-year-old boys. I'm like, they look so sweet and mm-hmm. innocent, but there's, I'm sure, so much going on with them. Right. And like reading what went on with you and the fact that nobody knew. Right. And I think that, you know, I think we've come a long way in terms of talking about this more openly, but I still think we have a long way to go. And certainly, like, my parents' generation just didn't – that wasn't a reality for them. And my neither of my parents, even though they grew up where they would have been, like, teenagers and young adults, like, in, like, sort of, like, the hippie era, right? Mm-hmm. They did not – they were not, like, people that were, like, out experimenting with drugs. So they really just didn't have any sort of basis to – understand it although on my Persian side my dad's side there are a lot of people especially older generations um, that were opium addicts yeah. well back then it was like a casual thing it was like Very. it was like smoking a cigarette yes. at a bar yeah. they That's, would just do it at dinner sometimes yeah. with friends That's there are what my still dad Persian told me men who are like very ultra like you know who are still act very Persian and like yeah. have stayed close to the culture, so opium is still casual. For yeah, them. and I remember my dad like backgammon and like yeah, absolutely yeah. tea backgammon yeah. and some opium. And yeah. I remember my dad telling me like recent, not you know, kind of like last few years when we've talked much more openly about my addiction, that he always he had seen people 
use opium and some people would get kind of like messed up on it and he had that understanding like he never even wanted to try it because Mm -hmm. he just didn't that like it was enough fear around what that would look like Mm -hmm. that he just never had any desire to try it um so yeah they were just from like a very different generation um in in both of them in different ways (laughs) you know well i think also like in la and even now like when i was in high school Mm -hmm. heroin was like really commonly Mm -hmm. used when people were just smoking it but Mm -hmm. Back then, like, and you talk about this in the book, like, it was kind of more casual. Not when you started, but, like, I don't know. And then also, like, I read all the Bret Easton novels, Bret Easton Ellis novels, and, like, this is so fucked up that I'm comparing your book to that. (laughs) Sorry. But it kind of reminded me of that. It captures, like, this similar time where it was, like, like, it was just, like, oh, here, like, it was, like, a, Mm -hmm. it was, like, weed or something. Mm -hmm. And then what also, um, like, I wanted to bring this up is that, and you, I think you talk about this in the book, it's, like, heroin addiction it doesn't always look like what you think it looks like right. it's not this like stereotypical like messed up looking person right. or yeah. like someone who's from like this kind of socioeconomic background right. like it's like anyone can be addicted to heroin mm-hmm. you don't need to look like a heroin addict right. to be suffering with this problem like i was I, shocked yeah when you were saying how well you kept it together mm-hmm. that you were getting such great grades i'm like i got b's and c's and i wasn't doing heroin how did, <laughs> how did you manage to like keep it together so well I mean, I think that I was so driven to hide, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that like my, in some ways, like there was more of an addiction to keeping up this facade than there was to the actual drug. Like that was a big part of it. Right. So I had already started that behavior before drugs came into the picture. And I was so scared of people finding out because I really had this like horrible belief system about myself that I was really broken that I was this like horrible monster that like the childhood trauma like had been a result of something being inherently wrong with me so I was so afraid of people finding out that I was using and that all the you know and the reasons behind the using Mm -hmm. that I just felt like if I just kept moving if I like you know if I like was always on and I could really, you know, like talk a lot and be popular and do this and do that and look right and, and, you know, get good grades and ride horses and be a cheerleader and play volleyball. And if I just pushed, 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 that like no one would ever see the cracks, you know? And I think that that was really, I think that's not dissimilar for a lot of people that aren't addicts that, that, you know, sometimes they're workaholics or, or they have they struggle with like perfectionism because they think that if they push hard enough that they'll be able to avoid sitting with the with the thing that they're really running from mm-hmm. or like eating disorder yeah oh absolutely like it's control right mm-hmm. it's all like an addiction to control as well well i you weren't like typically addicted to heroin either at least not for the beginning mm-hmm. so like just to give our listeners like a bit more of a background sure. you try it for the first time mm-hmm. when you're 13 mm-hmm. and then you enter high schools like how would you describe your schedule with the drug like how often were you doing it and- so between 13 and 15 it started where like I was just doing it on weekends and it wasn't every weekend and then it was like more frequent and then over that summer like the first summer that like heroin was in my life I was using more frequently 
And then right after I turned 14, um, there was a lot of turmoil at home. My mom was going through some personal issues. And then my grandmother died, whom I was very close to. And that was the first time that I brought heroin home. I had always just used it used it with my boyfriend. And that was when I started bringing heroin home and sort of my use escalated. Now, I still had like all these invisible lines that I didn't want to cross. So first it was like, I won't bring it home. And then it was like, if I bring it home, I'm not going to shoot it at home. I'll snort it at home. You know, so I had like, and of course, like every single barrier I made for myself or, you know, line that I drew in the sand, I trampled over at some point and that was true during that sort of era of drug use and then again later when I you know because I went on and off of drugs for so long there were always these sort of boundaries I I set that I quickly erased (laughs) I mean for me what was really emotional was I'm forgetting his name but the death of um your first boyfriend's cousin yes Sam Mm mm-hmm like I, I just like it's and then and then your grandmother passed away in the right. same time like I would have been so afraid to continue I don't know right. but I mean but then again like it's not that there was like it seems like the drug addiction was secondary to like the mental aspect of yes. it, like the psychological problems you were facing oh yeah I think that's true for a lot of people struggling with addiction the drugs are sort of a symptom yeah you know nobody says like oh when I grow up I want to be a heroin addict that like that doesn't you know they might say they want to party or something but I don't think anybody has like this idea of like being stuck in the hell of being physically and psychologically and psychically addicted to something you know so um I think that most people struggling with addiction or any you know alcoholism or any kind of addiction have some either a mental health issue underneath it and or some sort of PTSD, childhood trauma, something's there. Um, Not everyone, but I think that like a lot of people have, you know, and it may just be as simple as that like they never felt comfortable in their own skin or they have anxiety that, you know, there's lots, there's a whole variety of things that people could be struggling with. But, you know, we, just the same way that we would take a painkiller as prescribed after surgery for physical pain i found that people generally turn to opiates to treat emotional pain as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, we interviewed she actually another author mm-hmm. um, about a month or two ago. And like <clears throat> uh, her son passed away when he was very young. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how, like, immediately... Well, I first... I mean, later on, it was Xanax. But, mm-hmm. like, when they first... When her brother first told her the news, like, they injected her with something. I forget. But, like... Right just to tranquilize her right right Um, so like i mean that's that's obviously a trope but um you i think you were talking about this scene before Uh, i'm just thinking of like other scenes in the book that i like want to bring the scene that like was really intense for me was the green sweater Mm -hmm. and taking it off putting it on Mm -hmm. cold sweats i'm hot now Mm -hmm. and then i guess you could describe the scene if you want for the listeners but it was just so that scene was, I don't know why, for me, was really intense. Like that. Yeah. Well, this was, like, at the point where you were, like, fully oh, yeah. in the throes. I was in a really, like, I was using a lot at that point. And I was in New York um, visiting my dad and thinking that I was going to, you know, I had this 
over the years of using, like I often thought like, oh, I'll just go on a trip, <laughs> which is like the worst idea. And I don't know, I tortured myself by like going through like physical withdrawal so many Yeah, times. I don't, I don't understand. I don't know that. what my thinking was, but I thought somehow in another city it would be okay. So yeah, the, in the chapter of the green sweater, um, I was 23 at the time and in New York and, and thinking that I would, you know, kick while I was out here and it, I was having a and terrible it time. It was summer. It was hot. I was like freezing and then hot constantly. Literally all the odds were against you. Like, yes. You chose it was the awful. Worst time <laughs> I know. To try and kick. In the Rudolph Goodman bathroom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And so like, like how did you. So that Sorry, was the thing. Like here I went like this, the, you know, like sort of the juxtaposition of, you know, and I, I had obviously I had access to financial privilege where I was like, oh, I'll just go shop away my problems. And then going back to you know, the Palm Court at the Plaza, which was, you know, like this iconic place where it was something that I loved doing when I was a little girl and going there and just feeling like how earth shatteringly different my life had, you know, turned out at that point. Um, you know, I still like I, I just that was that's one of those moments in life that like I, I can remember every single thing about it because it was such a defining moment for me the juxtaposition of like where I was and like what was physically happening with me well I guess this is also like a good opportunity to go into how your dad Mm -hmm. differentiates from like a typical Persian Mm -hmm. father because you went on this trip to go spend time with him and he didn't notice that you were having withdrawal symptoms Mm -hmm. and then at some point you found like a piece of heroin Mm -hmm. in your sweater um, and then you were able to continue so you Mm -hmm. felt better but like he didn't notice that and like usually I don't know. I mean, do you think he had any like clues that something was up? Like, what was that I mean, like? I think my when my parents were so shocked when they found out. I feel like they had warning signs that like something was going on with me in the periods of time when I wasn't using, which is like when they sent me to therapy and and things, because those were the times when I was not able to control my emotions. So you know, I got caught like six weeks after that you know when the green sweater incident takes place so Mm -hmm. um and they were really shocked now after that you know it's like spoiler alert I didn't get it right away and it took me like another five years of relapsing then my dad was really on to me you know he could tell and of course I would still lie about it you know I think that in the ways that I think my dad was a typical Persian dad just from like other Persian girls I know <laughs> is that he definitely like always had the impulse that like he wanted to try and take care of me and for him that meant financially and to like fix things financially mm-hmm. because he wasn't there a lot because he worked really hard and his career took off and and um, so I think that for him it was sort of like somehow he believed he would always take care of me and I think that's a Persian thing <laughs> I mean it's no, not it's just a Persian really, thing but I see like it's you know, like I was like his little girl, like no matter what it, you know, still now, like I think he, there's part of him that looks at me that way. Um, but I think it, like you said, like the ways in which he wasn't as typical as I didn't have also because we weren't living together during those years. I think I just didn't have sort of like the same sort of like strict rules that so many Persian girls I know did. 
and do, you know. So you did know Persian girls growing up. I did, yeah, them. I did. Well, yeah, the fact that you were allowed to go to sleepovers with friends without any questions asked—that was definitely right. not Persian. No, <laughs> and even like, and I don't. My dad was not like. Even if my dad had been living at home, I don't know that he would have. He's just that's not his. He just wasn't very strict. Yeah, because I remember growing up, my because my mom is so not Persian. Like she would lie to my dad mm-hmm. and tell him I'm sleeping at a cousin's house. Right. Because she knew that my dad wouldn't be okay with me sleeping over at a friend. Right. Yeah. That's not. That was not at all my experience. <laughs> and I. But I. But I've definitely witnessed that. You know, and seen that in other Persian households. Because yeah, I, I feel grew like you up had like free range parenting. Like I just. I did a little bit. You know, and I think that also, I gave my parents the impression that I was doing really well, so they just didn't see that there was any problem. I wasn't getting into trouble. You know, I. I, I can. I can totally understand why they didn't see warning signs because I was really, really good at hiding it. And I think that, I think that as a parent, it can be really hard. Even if like some flicker of a warning sign came across, that's not something you would ever want to think happened to your kid or is mm-hmm. happening with your kid. So a lot of times I think people, you know, not I'm not talking specifically about in Persian culture, just in general, mm-hmm don't want to confront what the reality is and that can help people so if there if there's an easy way to be like but look she's doing great that's a much easier story to believe than then there's something really wrong well yeah that's something i think we definitely want to talk about was something that is more specific to middle eastern culture mm-hmm is the idea of shame and that mm. maybe if there wasn't so much shame in what yeah. you were doing that you would have been able to seek help mm-hmm. earlier and you wouldn't have been so embarrassed to admit to it. Right. I think that that's something that's, as you said, it's prevalent in many cultures, but particularly I think in Persian and other Middle Eastern cultures that there is this idea of wanting to appear to the outside world like you have a lot of money that you're doing well in every aspect of your life look at my children look at my house look at my boat look at my beautiful wife like look there is there was a lot of that in my house and you know I think that that's you know it's true for a lot of people but definitely I think in Persian culture you don't see people like going and telling you all the things that are wrong and I've seen that unfold in other families in different ways as well um my dad was not raised in a way where he felt comfortable openly talking in sort of like an emotionally intimate way and my mother was a much more emotional person and that always to me looked like oh well that's out of control being emotional and then my father was very in control so I always sort of wanted to be that way and I think you know it's a <clears throat> something that I also say in the book it's that you know the first time I went to rehab this drug counselor said to me like you finally got your father's attention and I think that was a big thing for me is that I was always sort of seeking this approval or attention from him and never quite getting it in the way that I wanted it and it was very painful you know and I think that's something that you know I don't know how typical that is I've, in other Persian households but I definitely, I definitely wanted his approval <laughs> and wasn't feeling no, like I was we're, getting we're it. we're right here with you. <laughs> because I, mean. I, I always say, like, I always joke that, like, he could just, my dad was never, like, he's not a person that, like, yells or, like, he's, that's not, like, 
he's not that person at all. It was just more like a look or saying something in a very calm way that could make you feel really, really small. You know, that said, like my dad and I have a very different relationship now because we've opened up so much. Like when I, when my parents first met out, my dad did not want anyone to know that I was in rehab. Yeah. He didn't want anyone to know. And now, like, he tells people he's, like, about my book coming out That's and, so like, sweet. talks That's about it. Not. And I love that. It's just a very – and, again, like, I don't know. Maybe part of that is, like, there's – it's more part of, like, the national conversation as well. But he doesn't have, like – he doesn't have any shame about it. And that's kind of a miracle. No, that, <laughs> you know? that's really amazing because I kind of look back at my experience with like family members or family friends. Mm. If someone is sick, let's say, right. which there's no shame in being sick. Right. But with Persian culture, for some reason there is, even though you didn't choose to be sick, right. you got sick. People won't admit to it until mm-hmm. it's so physically noticeable that you can't deny it right. anymore. Right, right. Like people will just hide it for the long... I, I notice this all the time. People are hiding being sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm just like, why are people ashamed of th- that out of right. all things? Right. But there there is a lot of shame in not being perfect and not being right. able to say, look at my beautiful wife, like you said, and whatnot. Right. And I think that there is something about, you know, I think about like my, my dad, and I think this is probably true for a lot of Persians, you know, he he left Iran like long before the revolution. He was still a teenager when he came here in the mid-60s, and he's never been back. Mm -hmm. And he really came here with the intention of like building the American dream for himself, and that included like his wife and children and like the picket fence and like, Mm -hmm. you know, being successful and all of those things. And he really, to some extent, you know, to a large extent, really achieved that, you know. So I think that I was sort of the crack in that, in that dream you know and now again like it's different but I think that that was a really hard thing for him to sort of come to terms with um I mean my grandfather he came to America in the 50s Mm -hmm. and then because he wanted this American he actually your father reminds me a lot of my grandfather um he my dad is like similar, but he definitely screamed <laughs> other things. But like, yeah, I have a very different relationship with my dad. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, my family wanted to come to America, mm-hmm. like ir- like irrespective of what was right. happening of um, in, in Iran. Mm-hmm. And my parents grew up also. They left before the revolution mm-hmm. when they were like twelve, thirteen. Yeah, um, but they still hold. Like, I feel like there's not, there's no escaping it, really. Like, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they, like, you know, were, maybe they, they like, smoked weed in high school and, like, mm-hmm. went to Studio 54. Like, right. they did all these things that I'm like, wow, you're so cool. But, like, at the end of the day, they, like, have these really conservative. Traditional. Um, like, yeah, expectations yeah. of me. Mm-hmm. Well, my dad is so the opposite of both your dads. Like, my, <laughs> my dad still doesn't have citizenship because he's hoping to go back to Iran someday. When when there's a new revolution and Iran becomes normal wow. again, he still he's like I don't want to be an American citizen because then they might not let me back. That's my father. Well, my dad in a is, nutshell. My dad is like he has like he has never had a desire to go back because he's like it's not my country anymore, mm-hmm. and he has no desire to see what it is now. And I found that so interesting. I actually I remember doing I did, I did like a I did this course this like college course where like it was you know it was like a radio like not a podcast but like a radio sort of like documentary kind of thing Mm -hmm. and I interviewed my dad about that because I find that so interesting that 
maybe that's part of the reason that he disconnected himself a little bit from the culture from the culture because he just he's like i'm an american i'm not you know that's like that was where i was born but that's not my my country Mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore and that's so sad you know and i think that's i mean i'm sure that a lot of people that that left pre-revolution would not recognize the country i don't have any family there they're they all left you know most of them left before the revolution and definitely by the time that the revolution happened um and uh you know they were either in europe or in the states and yeah it's i it's sad for me too because like i've never been and like i don't think that i'd probably i don't know that i'll be able to go in my lifetime and I, I would like to. I would like yeah, to. Visit. I would like to yeah. go, but Eventually, I wouldn't want to go now. in these circumstances. Yeah. No, no, no. And my dad has always been like, "I've never forbidden you to do anything. <laughs> I forbid you to go." You know, he doesn't. He doesn't have trust in. He does not. He thinks that if he ever went, that he would be put in prison because he left so long ago mm-hmm. and, you know, had a certain career here yeah. and never came back. That he just does not trust the government there at all. Oh, for sure. I mean, I know for a fact, like. I wouldn't feel safe going with the current passport I have now because right. I've been to Israel so many times. Right. Because so much of my family went to Israel mm-hmm. from Iran mm-hmm. that I would be scared for them to see that. Right. And I'd be scared about what they might do to me. So I would definitely go get a new passport before I ever thought about yeah. visiting Iran yeah. um, with the government that's in place right now. Um, but it's just, it's so funny. I think a lot of people don't realize the stereotypical Iranian that like, we all bond about that mm-hmm. we grew up like the culture we grew up with here that's it's a completely different breed from the iranians that are still in iran mm-hmm. right now like it's so like it's still very old-fashioned and there's still so many things that are similar but it's so different from like the iranians that stayed i think but there's also like i think with the younger generations cause i have a friend who um is iranian and she went back like probably like I mean now this is like 20 years ago but she went you know like about 20 years ago when we were young and like she went back and um she was like oh it's so much fun because people have these crazy parties and and she was somebody that had also struggled with addiction she was like don't go to Iran if you don't want to do heroin (laughs) (laughs) so she said that there was there was like very little alcohol but it was really easy for her to get drugs and I thought that was really interesting aside from that I think that like there's also there's a large part of the population that is really mobilized to change things as we've seen in the last 10 years and uh, unfortunately you know there's still a government in place that really does everything to squash that very large growing voice you know you think about I can't remember what the statistic is but the number of young people like the people like under the age of 25 in Iran that, that that percentage of the population is huge and in comparison to like here, for example, mm-hmm. and they these are people that are not in in um, support of this totalitarian government yeah. regime. Yeah. yeah, regime. I mean, um, before the revolution, people could travel from Israel to Iran very freely, mm-hmm. and they did very often. And my uncle told me when he was in his twenties, he did a trip all over Europe, and his last stop was Iran. And he said, Iran, like pre-revolution was more fun than all of Europe. Oh, yeah. Like, the parties and the freedom and the way you can dress and everything. It was it was the so cool. different. In the 60s, like, before my dad left, there were 200,000 Americans living in, in Tehran. 
my oh, wow. grandmother, oh, she that. was like a big part of like the women's lib movement there. She was the first female um, principal of a high school in Tehran. Oh, wow. It was very different. It was like they call it like the Paris. Oh, I mean, they say that about Beirut too, but like the Paris of the Middle East. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, but no, I mean, it was just a very different, a different world. Okay, I always make fun of my dad. I'm like, literally, anyone I talk to says they lived in Tehran. Did people live in any other city of Iran? Well, everyone was in Tehran. Well, I think my dad. <laughs> was from a, like a, a village like out they had like a oh, farm yeah, like outside of I can't remember is. it was like right outside of Tehran though so ostensibly he grew up do in you Tehran. know about like the stereotypes where it's like oh if you're Hamiduni or Esfahani if you're Kashi you're Kashi. very stubborn and cheap no you're also very timid and you're like uh. a hypochondriac <laughs> I haven't heard it's this. like Persian astrology right. it's like somewhere you're from there's like Wait, this personality oh my God, yes. traits oh it I wanted Persian to write an article oh that's so funny um, but it's funny because my, my dad would tell me, like, a lot of his family, like, were born and raised in Tehran, mm-hmm. but you still say you're Kashi because your great-grandfather was from Kashan. I'm right, like, right, right. I'm like, okay, but you're not Kashi anymore. He's like, no, we still are. Mm-hmm. They have, like, a lot of pride in, like, where their great-grandfathers were born. Right. I don't know what it's all about. No, because th- that's another thing. Like, not only, like, Persian culture itself is rich, but there's all these, like, subcultures within it as well. Like, of course, the yeah. The Kashi people mm-hmm. will they'll use certain vocabulary words that, like, Tehrani people won't use. Or, like, it's, yeah. it's really like... Or, like, yeah. Mashadi people will only marry Mashadi people, especially their first cousins. <laughs> well, that, it's, I mean, then it's true, too, in terms... If you think of, like, the sort of, like, the history of Iran that there's you know thousands and thousands of years of like constantly changing borders and different things you know Mm -hmm. like you know with between like Russia and Iran there was so much back and forth there you know yes we once had an empire (laughs) (laughs) we had the Persian empire many many years ago (laughs) that is a really good accent (laughs) no that was so bad I'm so embarrassed (laughs) well we used to joke because um, my older son like when he started talking my so my dad like still you know he his accent is slight but he still has like the vw thing mm-hmm. so like he'd say like oh vow you know <laughs> and so when my son, older son started talking he would always say oh vow and we're like That's did so you cute. get that from your grandfather <laughs> oh <so> vow <laughs> it's really funny though because i always thought bmw instead of bmw was like it's not just a Persian thing. It's French. Yeah, yeah. It, but it's also Russian, Israeli. Mm-hmm. Everyone says Bemve. Mm-hmm. But like it's so, like it matches Persian so much to say that because they really always switch W's with V's. Right. And, and in French, it's V double right? For uh-huh. V is V yeah. and yeah. then W double is double Yeah. So you can understand, like, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> there's probably, you know. Or, oh, I always have an argument with my friend because she's Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. And in Ukraine and in Russia, they have salad olivier. Okay. Oh, yeah. It is not a Russian thing. Okay. So I keep arguing with her. I love how excited you just thought. No one can see her. <laughs> I, I know. Because I'm really popping up. Because, like, I, I've had this discussion with Russians it's a, too. It's a French um, chef. Olivier, uh-huh. who first apparently went to Russia 
to make it for like the okay. czars <laughs> and then came to Iran to make it for whoever was ruling Iran at that time. So like you have Salad de Louvier at like every Persian restaurant right. but then the Russians are like no it's ours. Meanwhile really it's French. Right. But it's so good. <laughs> I actually have no idea. <laughs> I, we always have this argument she's like it was brought to the Russians first it's ours. I'm like technically no. it's French. Yeah. It's not yours. I it's not know. ours. It's French. There's so many. I mean I feel they like in... keep Piroshki but uh, <laughs> exactly. We're going to take credit for Salad de Louvier I guess. It's one of my favorite, like my favorite. Well, my speaking of food, like my favorite of all time is fesenjon. Really, you like fesenjon? Oh, you know, we okay, have an episode we called Sex and Fesenjon. <gasps> yeah, we you don't like it. Okay, I like fesenjon, but it has to be made well. I will yeah, like, yeah. it's heavy really for me. It makes me miss. nauseous after more than a spoonful. And recently, okay, we're gonna. Um, Everyone who's going like, to listen to this episode, before you listen to it, you're going to see on our story, there's um, an Instagram filter <laughs> called Which Horeshed Are You? Oh. So we're all going to do it. Okay. And one of oh, my yeah. friends <laughs> got Fessenjun, and I was just like, ew. Like, <laughs> oh, that is so funny. It's my favorite. Really? I love maybe, it. Maybe you'll get Fessenjun. I love it we'll so much. And it's funny because like I haven't found Persian food in New York that is like where I'm like, yes. It's just not like, I mean, maybe there is. Home cooked is always the best. <laughs> like, yeah. I know, but There's in LA, you can actually food. get really good. Where do Persian you like to food. go in LA for Persian? Well, food? there's a place now. I don't even know the name of it. It's on. It's I think it's on Ventura Boulevard, like deep in Encino, that we used to get food from. And oh, there are a couple okay. places in Glendale. Yeah, Rafi's. Rafi's, which is not actually. It's, it's not it's, really. It's more it's, like kebab. Yeah, and it's Armenian run. But, but it is. They make the best kebab. Armenian. It is really good, but they don't do pheasantjon. No, they do it. There's another place. Atari in Westwood is really good. Yeah, I think I don't. There have been a couple places. I've Wait, what's the restaurant that we want to try in New York? But like, you have to make a reservation oh, so in advance. Uh, yeah, this Persian. I mean, it's like it is Persian food, but it's a bit like not snobby. But the woman who started the restaurant is Persian. Uh-huh. Um, but there's like. It was yeah. It was written in the New York Times and like every. It's impossible to get a reservation. I'm forgetting the name of it oh, though. Sorry. Now I'm gonna have to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's Brooklyn. also have to there's go. a place that like we order from delivery sometimes. It's like decent. It's good, but I haven't. I you just know. want to say non-kosher Persian restaurants are so much better than the well, kosher. Well, in general, kosher. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, my, not my, my friend favorite. is gonna hate me. I have one friend who still keeps kosher, uh-huh. and she hates me for always saying I don't like kosher restaurants. Right. I just, the service sucks. I'm sorry. Like I can't. Like, no. The only good kosher restaurant that like I love going to is called Wolf and Lamb. It's in Manhattan. Uh-huh. Other than that, I I can't. I right. just don't enjoy it. Like, You're shouting out so many restaurants. I they know. They should always sponsor us. They should sponsor us. You know where I've never been, and people say it's really good. And now I can't remember the name of it. It's on 18th, and it's that place like inside like a pizza place. And oh, okay, yeah. That it's it's like, closing. I think it may have already closed. Oh, I've never tried it. I didn't either, and it's not that far where I live. Yeah. Um, Ravag is the place. Oh, Ravag. Yeah. Wait, that's the one that I'm talking about, because we have one in Roslyn, and I yeah. live in Great Neck. I'm Bob Sullivan, the new host of AARP's The Perfect Scam Podcast. And with Frank Abagnale and other top fraud experts, we're bringing you brand new episodes of America's most shocking scam stories. I got an email alerting me to 22 accounts that had been opened up in my name scam was masterfully designed new episodes available now subscribe to the perfect scam podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts 
I'm Bob Sullivan, the new host of AARP's The Perfect Scam Podcast. And with Frank Abagnale and other top fraud experts, we're bringing you brand new episodes of America's most shocking scam stories. I got an email alerting me to 22 accounts that had been opened up in my name. Scam was masterfully designed. New episodes available now. Subscribe to The Perfect Scam Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So that's the non-kosher one that me and my family, we always get fish kebab from okay, there. Okay, so, so that's, there, that, that's the only one I found in New yeah, York Ravach that's like pretty is, good. Yeah. It's pretty good. There's, I mean, a, there's a Ravach in the city? Yeah. In the East okay. Village, only, yeah. There's I've two. I've never gone to the one in Long Island. Yeah, so sometimes we order from the one in the East Village. Wait, I kind of want to go to Wait, I should ask Ravach <laughs> to sponsor us. They messed up my last order. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom calls and she's like, my mom's say. like, we ordered one green rice and my mom's like saying the names of the rice and the the man who works there doesn't understand what's the green rice called polo 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 sabzi no no it's the one with the green lentils in it oh no it's the it's the one with the part not parsley what's that vegetable fuck it's got the little lentils and then it has like the it does have parsley in it or something right yeah dill dill it's dill it's dill no is that what it's called i, I think, it's, think whatever so my mom calls the guy oh my God. she's like <laughs> we ordered one Everyone's polo zeresh and one polo havich and you gave us two polo havich and then the guy goes what's polo havich she's like you work at ravach and you don't know what polo havich <laughs> the green one the green one. she's like yelling at them the guy's like so scared he's like i don't know what you want me to do <laughs> oh wait i have a question, food related question do you drink that weird yogurt soda <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, Duke. I love Duke. Duke, that's we, right. My dad about loves it. I don't. I, I've tried. I can't do I it. So I, I make. Well, we both make Persian memes, mm-hmm. and one of them. Do you know the Dosekis commercial? Where it's like, um, I don't always. I don't always drink uh, beer. When I do, I drink Dosekis. Uh huh. So like, I made one about Duke or whatever. Like, it, it's really good with fish. If you're yeah. having fish and green rice, and then the yogurt on the side, yeah. it's really yummy. Yeah. I don't know why I like yogurt, but I just never I could you know I couldn't get past like mm. I couldn't get past it to enjoy. Well, yeah, it, but my it, dad it's weird like that you're would always like get a it. seltzer yeah. yogurt. It's like <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of how we got here. I think this all like came from talking about Persian Wait, dads. Okay, and we were talking Persian about dads, heroin, and but, now right, we're talking about but I will say that like my biggest connection to Persian culture was always food because yeah. my grandmother, when she was alive and before she got sick, like growing up. You know, she lived pretty close to us, and like we were there a lot. And she always, always, always had fresh food going, and it was like what you were talking about. Like she would offer something to you like a hundred times, and I didn't understand it then. I was like, I've said no like fifty times, and she <laughs> keeps offering me this kiwi, and I can't take it. I don't want it. You know, maybe this is why Persian men don't understand that when girls say no, they mean no because oh, no. they, they think we're just sorrowing. <laughs> Try harder. <laughs> again try to kiss me one more time oh no <laughs> i'm just tired so i dark. do want to sleep with you it's so dark. <laughs> oh okay sorry like a whole other episode. that should be that should be an episode sexual tarot is it a thing or do we really mean no okay i mean this is now i'm like gonna ask you a question but um have you do you date persian guys no i've never dated a persian guy um i've gone on dates with persian guys because i think like Listen, if someone's asking me out, I'm not going to be mean to them. And I'm flattered that they, for some reason, even want to go out with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, I'll give you a chance. I'll give anyone a first date. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
the the two times I have given Persian guys a chance, I remind myself why I don't date Persian guys. Right. Just mentality wise, like I don't click with a Persian man. I don't date like Persian men often, but my for like the one boyfriend serious relationship I was in was with a Persian guy, mm-hmm. but he was there was nothing about him that was really Persian. Do you, is it important to your parents for you to like? No, they just care about like Jewish. My, right, like, right. My dad like tries to tell me like date a Persian. I'm like you married an Israeli, and right. he's like. Yeah. Well, <laughs> your mom is still, like, per- Well, yeah, her parents are Persian. He's like, yeah, but your mom's parents are Persian. I'm like, yeah, but my mom is so Israeli. Like, right. mentality-wise, like, you didn't marry a Persian woman. And my dad even tells me, like, he tries to say it as an insult, but mm-hmm. I take it as a compliment. He's like, you're not a Persian girl. You're a very Israeli girl. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, what do you want from me? Like, this is how I was raised. I'm sorry. Um, but when you were talking about the food... Mm-hmm. I, like, I just want to say this is the one thing that I feel like like people love to shit on Persians, but then they always go, oh, but your food's amazing. Like That's the one thing that nobody could ever shit on because it's just so good. Like It's the one thing to like really brag about. Like it's Yeah, sometimes really we're cheap best. or sometimes we're really old-fashioned, but our food, though, like it's bomb. <laughs> um, no, I feel like... Do you, oh, like, do you ever cook Persian food? This is the last I have. Person. I have a little <laughs> bit. I have a little bit, but only recently. Like I really okay. wish that I had taken advantage of you know, learning from my grandmother. I didn't appreciate it in the same way. Honestly, me well, too. You were so yeah. young. Yeah. Like, but I just feel badly that I didn't. I mean, my mom, I think my mom probably cooks Persian food better than I do. <laughs> but I have now, like, you know, like, I've learned how to make, like, cutlet. And, like, that's mom. another one of my favorite things. Because yeah. my mom used to, my grandma made them. And then my mom would always make little cutlet, which I love. That's <laughs> yeah. so cute. And um, uh, I've tried to make pheasant and it didn't. It wasn't it wasn't greasy or anything, but it just didn't come out didn't come out the right color. And I it wasn't brown? No, it wasn't brown enough, even though I used like the was pomegranate like molasses brown? and ever it was like more like it's more like brown. Mm. My mom is like a <laughs> <not> consultant. <laughs> I can give you her number. Uh, but but really, and the other thing that I'm just uh, I can't ever get the way my grandmother did is Tadik. Oh which, you know what's uh, funny? I'm a horrible cook. But can I, I can make tadik, and my mom and my dad were so impressed. They're like, "You made this?" I'm like, "I made this." Well, my <laughs> aunt, so my dad's sister, who's Persian, obviously, she said this. She's like, "Oh no, you need to get a Persian rice cooker, and you just make tadik in the bottom." No, Am I, no don't I use a hate rice the rice cooker. Really? Kind of like rubbery. They're yeah, not crispy. Oh, uh, okay. That's it it but what about? But thick. I like the kind with the little thin potato at the bottom too. I don't like yeah, that one as much because there's less regular tadik. But um, but okay, I'll tell you how to make it. So okay. you, you put um water, mm-hmm. and then I love putting saffron, but mm-hmm. it's really expensive, mm-hmm. so you can use turmeric. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no! Don't, don't, don't! Get fresh saffron, oh grind it yourself. Not everyone, don't saffron is don't, if it's more expensive than gold. No, <laughs> yeah, it is. Per for per weight, saffron is more than it's gold. It's not good. If it's not saffron, it's not good. <laughs> I'm sorry. I won't eat it. If it's not saffron, I don't want it. Uh, yeah, I'm um, serious. Okay, fine. So you put saffron. Okay. And if you're not feeling bougie like Millie, you could put turmeric. You know I hate turmeric, but you could still put it. Whatever. Oh, I love turmeric. And then you, you put water. You put a little bit of water. Mm-hmm. And then once the water starts to bubble, mm-hmm. then you know you can start putting the rice. Uh-huh. No, that's not what you do. What? Amazing I'm sorry, my mom is the best Persian cook. Like, uh, I hate this you have to put a little bit of oil. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. you have to put a little bit, and not 
there's not that much water, very little water. Like, yeah, but you do put water. Yeah. I didn't say drench it. God. <laughs> no, but the, so back to dating Persian men. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> um, my parents don't really care if I marry a Persian. Yeah. They know I'm not going to. My yeah. mom always says... My mom likes to joke. She's like, it's a good thing you don't like Persian men because none of them would want you anyway. You can't cook. You don't clean. <laughs> well, you're giving tidy construction. Well, well it, it's very it's it's very interesting that I know how to make tadi because I set toast on fire twice in my life, but I can make good tadi. Um, but yeah, my mom always likes to joke that Persian guys wouldn't want me anyway, so it's a good thing I don't want one. <laughs> um... Okay, wait. I'm. I want to like go back a few conversations. To <laughs> back or like heroin back? Like how far back are we going right now? <laughs> um. Okay. Well, the th- one of the things that you I think you talk about in the book is that you. So you went to rehab twice. Mm-hmm. That's something we should mention within this whole narrative. And I don't think your parents knew to the extent of like how bad your no. addiction was right no and that that was i think i think that's why we brought up shame because mm-hmm. it's like well now they finally know but like do they actually really oh. know you're also lying to yourself yes. because you feel the shame mm-hmm. and it's like inherently like, you know um but built within our own i don't know why i can't finish the sentence but like we feel that shame too it's like part of our psyche um, right and i think that I think that there are a lot of, I mean, you could make the argument for American culture too, but I think that there is something in Persian culture, like a lot of other Middle Eastern cultures, where there, that's if that's like a failure, then you know any any sort of failure like that, you've brought shame not just on yourself but on your family, yeah. and there's the responsibility like, of that. Oh, what was her dad doing that she ended up like this? Right. What was her mom doing? Oh, it must have been them. Most like right. it's that whole right. Yeah, thing. and I think that definitely, you know, it took me a long time. I mean, I think probably my parents didn't know everything until they read my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was very honest. I think like, that's the best way to at do a it. certain point, like I, I had become very honest about all everything but like obviously you know I didn't go sit down and tell them in detail about like all of these really humiliating dark moments of my life and I think that you know it's that thing where like the first time I went to rehab I was like I really minimized I'm like oh it was just like a few months I didn't tell them that I had used when I was younger and then that kind of came out later and it was always this like minimizing things Mm -hmm. and then like a little more truth would come out and then after I had my son and I had like been off of drugs for you know a while I, I started to realize that the less that I held on to those secrets the less shame I felt that somehow hiding the things that I thought were going to bring me more shame actually alleviated the shame. And that was a big turning point for me in terms of my mental health because I, it was huge. I mean, like now I can, this is the reason I can talk about all of this. The reason like I've written about things that like, you know, 10, no, not 10 years ago, but like say like 15 years ago, even I was, you know, it's been 17 years that I've been clean, but I still carried that shame. And then now I'm like, yeah, I can talk to you about those darkest moments of my life because they don't define me as a person. Like what defines me as a person is like what I have done to grow since Mm -hmm. then. I think that's like we get so caught up on sort of being afraid of being defined by our failures and like really 
failures are an opportunity to build our character and we become who we are because of how we build ourselves up after failure. You know, if we never fail, you're not going to do much character building. Not that I'm suggesting that people go out and like, you know, have a drug addiction. But, you know, people feel shame about so many different things. You know, and I think that's something that I've heard from readers, you know, early readers about the book is that there's a lot of sort of the feelings of shame and disconnection and isolation about whatever it is they're feeling ashamed about that they can relate to. Because I think we all struggle with that. That's like a human experience. And I think that it's important for people that don't understand addiction to understand that it's just another human condition someone's struggling with. And it's part of the experience of being a human. It's not them, you know, it's not this aberration. Um, And I think that's a really important point that I hope that people come away from the book, you know, thinking about that um, addiction, like any other sort of thing that human beings struggle with, is is another human experience. What kind of advice would you give to someone who's listening? Like maybe mm-hmm. they're struggling mm-hmm. with addiction or they know someone. Like what would what would you say like should be their first step or like what would you recommend? I mean, I think for if somebody is struggling with addiction, the secrecy of it is really what keeps it alive. So I think that reaching out to somebody you trust and telling them the truth is sort of the first step in the right direction. Um, and I also think that it's important to remember that it's not going to yes there's work that's going to have to be done like with when you take away the whatever the addiction is whether it's like a gambling addiction eating disorder drugs you know whatever it is when you take that away you're going to have to do some work so that you learn new coping mechanisms but i promise that if you do the work that you're not going to feel so bad like you've been feeling you know i mean that's the thing is that i think that so much of the time I was just, I had convinced myself that I was going to feel this miserable forever. And it just felt so, I felt so raw and I was, it felt like I was in so much pain. And the thought of like living any longer feeling like that was awful. It made me want to kill myself quite literally. And I think that, that it's so hard when you're in the thick of it to think that there's ever a possibility that you could not feel that way. But, you know, I, I lived the first 28 years of my life really believing that it was not possible for me to be happy, that it was not possible for me to go for any extended length of time without struggling with feeling like I wanted to kill myself. Um, And then once the drugs came in for 15 years, I didn't believe that, you know, I knew that I could stop, but I didn't believe that I would stay stopped. And the fact that like now I've been off of drugs longer than I was on them is a miracle the fact that like you know I mean like shit still happens in life but I'm overall a happy person and I think more importantly I feel satisfied with like the life that I have I have a full life and I just can't believe it like I really thought I, I really didn't think that I would make it no, and and that like that I can sit here and like talk to you right now about it like that's huge <laughs> it's it's huge and I you know huge. I I know what it's like to feel hopeless. And I think that like, you know, the only, you know, people talk about like hitting bottom, like there's always a lower bottom, right? And the only- I know, that's so scary. Yeah, there is. But the only bottom you can't recover from is death. So as long as you are breathing, you have a chance. There is hope. And I say that to people if they love somebody who's struggling. Like I have seen people that went to rehab like 20 times and 
eventually got it and something clicked for them. And these are people that no one thought would would ever be able to stay off of drugs. And I think that, you know, a big part of helping people too is sort of meeting them where they're at and, you know, coming at this from like a harm reduction model where, you know, it's why I'm in favor of like safe injection sites and Narcan training and fentanyl testing oh, yeah, strips. Oh, you mentioned that in your uh, book, the clean needle. Clean needle exchange. There's yeah. all the, because the idea is like, we're not going to help anyone if they're dead. So let's keep them alive first without any judgment. We just want people to stay alive and we want them to do the least harm to themselves and others, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're, and we can do that by helping people with these programs, a lot of people end up getting into treatment because they're introduced to them through these harm reduction programs like needle exchange. Um, And I think that that's, you know, I think that in, I've done some panels, um, you know, about public health policy with public health officials and law enforcement, and it's definitely moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I hope that it continues moving in that direction um, because that's really the only hope we have of helping people. Like, let's keep them alive first. Let's stop them from overdosing on fentanyl. You yeah, know, and no one is talking about fentanyl. It's crazy. I know so many people are just dropping dead from. Like, there's a lot of fentanyl and cocaine these days. And, like, in Manhattan, like, every weekend, I feel like I hear something. There's fentanyl and cocaine. People buy Xanax off the street, and there's fentanyl on the Xanax. I mean, there's a lot of – this is – there's there are um, a few places in New York that you can go and get fentanyl. That you can bring your drugs in, and they will test it for you. They're not going to confiscate your drugs. Oh, they will is? test it for oh, you. Wow. You Where can get are... fentanyl testing trips strips. I, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but I can give it to you if you want to put it in show notes or something. Oh, yeah. Because it's real, you know, like, like that's the thing is like, it's the same approach that we've had to like other things in the past that like people resisted, right? You're not going to stop people. We're not like this, this idea, like the just say no didn't work. So, like, Mm -hmm. the idea, like, when Trump is like on TV saying, like, we need to like, make commercials showing kids what happens when they do drugs that shit doesn't work yeah. <laughs> you know yeah that doesn't that's work that's why a lot of people say like um like making marijuana legal everywhere would make it safer for everyone because then they're not buying it from creepy people in the back of vans they yeah. can get it from a shop yeah, where I, it's safe and it's not and laced with something really i would much rather have somebody smoking marijuana than dead drunk yeah. because i've never you know, I have not known of anyone that like smoked a lot of pot and then went and blacked out and raped someone or yeah. what, you know what I mean? But seriously, like people... You, you smoke pot and you black out on your couch eating potato a chips. A lot of people, like, with, uh, you know... No, I mean, I That's I like think a whole other discussion. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think that the important... it really affects your, like... I mean, your intelligence and like these... Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, I know someone who like, was like addicted and totally had to totally ruined stop. a lot of my memory and like right. development. Like I smoked at way too young of an age. And, I, like, I will say, and I've had this discussion with my son, who's 16 now, you know, that, you know, we've talked about... Obviously, I've talked to him about my history and we've talked about drugs. And, um, you know, I've said like, you know, I like... I, it's totally normal that you're going to want to experiment. Like, I ask <laughs> that you can wait until you're a little bit older. Like, at least wait until you're over 18. Just give your brain a little bit more time yeah. to develop. Because even for myself, I think that, you know, I was really smart. That wasn't the problem. But emotionally, I was so stunted. Mm-hmm. So stunted. There are, you know, I, I like, joke now that like sometimes people are like oh like I thought you were so much younger I'm like yeah it's because emotionally probably really immature (laughs) you know I'm like catching up from like all of those formative years of not sort of 
understanding how to handle regulate my emotions in any way um so yeah it's i think that um wait, i've gone on another tangent <laughs> again <laughs> But I think that to anybody that is struggling, like that's the biggest me- message is that if you stay alive, there is always hope. No, I, I thank you. I mean, the I, the tangent is appreciated. I yeah. think you made like, really good points. And hopefully it speaks to um, whoever's listening yeah. if, they, if they need to hear this. Yeah. So. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people, they judge themselves so hard that if mm-hmm. they do relapse like this is who I am I'm a relapser now like, they, like and there's so much shame that's like you know there's like a whole other level of stigma and shame attached to relapsing too mm-hmm. even within like recovery communities you know um and I, there was one other thing I was thinking like how like thinking about like how prevalent is like addiction in, in Persian communities and I think that it's very prevalent it's very, <laughs> yeah. you know I think that you know I think the communities that have more shame and hide more things also have more addiction because to cope with the shame of other mm-hmm. things that they're hiding, they're starting to like get addicted to other things to mm-hmm. mask everything. It just becomes one giant mess. Like communities that are more open about the smallest thing. Mm-hmm. I'm Bob Sullivan, the new host of AARP's The Perfect Scam Podcast. And with Frank Abagnale and other top fraud experts, we're bringing you brand new episodes of America's most shocking scam stories. I got an email alerting me to 22 accounts that had been opened up in my name scam was masterfully designed new episodes available now subscribe to the perfect scam podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts donato's just didn't add bacon to their pizzas they added bacon to their bacon it's donato's new bacon duo pizzas two pizzas each with two kinds of bacon Try the new pepperoni bacon duo with pepperoni, Canadian bacon, and hardwood smoked bacon. And the chipotle bacon duo with Canadian bacon and chipotle seasoned bacon. Now get $2 off a large bacon duo or any large pizza. Use promo code 2. Donato's. Every piece is important. I think tend to have less yeah, like problems with Persians, addiction. Like they they do a lot of like weird, like kinky shit. I mean, I'm not judging, but right. I feel like it's because <laughs> our sexual life is so repressed that like mm-hmm. we can't talk about it. So then, like, right. you know, and it could be dangerous. Like some women can be putting themselves in dangerous situations mm-hmm. because they feel like they have to go drive to like some random city to go have sex and no one will see her. Right. It's like we have no idea what's going on. Right. And you know obviously that extends itself to drugs as well right and other addictions yeah i mean i think that's generally true of anything it's like what you were saying it speaks to the point of you know i think that people in any sort of destructive behaviors they get stuck in what i call like a shame cycle mm-hmm. you know so it's you you've done something that you feel you know you have like some shame to start with before mm-hmm. you do whatever the behavior is that gives you more shame so say like you know i was i felt shame because i had been sexually abused as a kid and i felt like i wanted to kill myself and that made me feel like there was something wrong with me so i had shame so then i did drugs and it confirmed the belief that i felt shame about that which confirmed the belief i had about myself that there was something to be ashamed of and the more so it just keeps repeating because you just pile shame and shame and shame and shame on top of you know shame on top of shame (laughs) and it becomes very difficult to sort of unravel from that so I think that you know I I absolutely think that openness and talking about these things is like the path to sort of alleviating that shame Mm -hmm. um and it was a big you know I was a writer anyway 
but the reason that I was like, okay, why is this? I knew that I had to get this project done because I felt like when I wrote about my past in my advice column and when I had written articles that referenced my addiction and recovery, the response that I got from people was so significant that I knew that this was a project that I needed to do. And I knew that there was an opportunity here, particularly with the opioid crisis in America, that there was an opportunity here to really help open up that conversation so that people, you know, because anyone that thinks that they they haven't known somebody affected by it or struggling with it is kidding themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's everywhere among all socioeconomic racial demographics. And um, so I think it's it's really something that I feel really, really passionately about. And the other thing that I just want to add is that, you know, another big part of the reason that I'm sitting here is that I had access to care. And I had access to care because of financial privilege and social privilege and, um, you know, cultural privilege. There are, there are barriers that people face, most of them financial, but also racial, socioeconomic, and cultural barriers to accessing help. And that's something that I feel very strongly about and I always try and advocate for because you know, in the last year, we've started to see these lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies for promoting, you know, the prescription painkillers as being like non-addictive and da, da, da. And, and yes, they had a hand in infiltrating the market and promoting the use of opioids, of prescription opioids. But we can't just punish them and then take the drug, make it harder to get prescription drugs, and then think that these people that were struggling are fixed now, mm-hmm. right? Because there is the core reason that they were using drugs in the first place. So really, it's like, I, I always go back to this again and again, that the drugs are a symptom, and we need to be treating the cause rather than the symptom. Um, so, you know, I my hope is, you know, that we move those funds toward actually helping people, you know, the whatever's collected from pharmaceutical companies and that we keep putting money instead of criminalizing um, possession, uh, that we put that money towards treatment because incarcerating somebody does nothing, does nothing no, I, but perpetuate the problem. That's a good point. I think that's like a lot that so many people need to hear. I think most people don't get that. Yeah. Especially people who haven't gone through it, through it themselves mm-hmm. and then try to like, vote on it right they don't understand what the actual like they don't understand that it's a symptom right they don't understand that like there's something behind it right yeah well thank you for coming on we didn't realize how long we've been <laughs> oh, recording I'm so sorry how long have we been it's, it's me I, I go no, on and on no no I, I can we, I can talk to you we've been recording for two hours no no oh, no, no, no it's just I was like, like whoa why no whoa that crazy um but, well, is there anything else you would like to add or any questions, Um, No, I just, I just want to say I'm so happy I got to read your book and thank Yay. you so much for putting your story out there. Thank you. Thank you for not being ashamed and for being the person that you are and just sharing your story with everyone. I think that it's so exciting that it's coming out soon. I'm so excited to share it with all of my friends. Yay. I'm going to make sure they all read it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think there's definitely like a lesson to be learned from reading it. It's like it's you don't have to be someone who struggled with right. heroin addiction to get pleasure from the book. Like I really enjoyed reading the book. I definitely related yeah. to your writing. Like I felt like I was you as a teenager. Right. I was heroin but I right. like so much like the music you would talk uh-huh. about and your like fashion sense. I was like, that sounds like me. Yeah, even, yeah. even reading about like your love interests. Like I like oh, at one yeah. point when Those I was reading your book, shows, like, yeah. <laughs> I was in bed kind of like crying over a boy and then I'm reading about you and your boys and I'm like I get her so much (laughs) (laughs) I I totally understand everything and I'm just like sitting in bed like no it's a great I mean and that's the thing like I like I said earlier it's like I think that with all art whatever it is like what we what we what resonates with us and what we respond to is like when we see the human the experience of being a human reflected back at us Mm -hmm. so that makes me really happy because we want you know i i want people to be able to see themselves in the book oh, i i definitely you saw know. myself like seeing like your escapism mm-hmm. and like the way you would try to escape i notice more the what ways i escape. try to escape and what my right. escapism is and like like it makes me understand myself better right by reading your book. Aww. <laughs> that makes <laughs> yeah. me so happy <laughs> No, oh, yeah. it's really well written. So Thank it comes really out well February twenty fifth. Twenty fifth, not fifth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so go out there and get it. Where can they order the book? Everywhere. It, I mean, it's it's. I mean, I don't know when this episode airs, but right now, like as of today, it's on sale on Amazon right now. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Um, so yeah. Exciting. Okay. Yeah, uh, we're gonna air this week. So yes, yeah, so you guys can go get it on it's Amazon. It's on Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble. Um, if you go to IndieBound, you can find. You know, whichever it's at okay. any, you can we'll order it from any indie in bookstore. Yeah. yeah, for everyone to get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> 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 Aaron is still here with us. We were gonna record this separately, but you know, it's only fitting that she has her own advice column that she could help us answer. Um, an email that was sent to us from a listener of ours who would like to remain anonymous. Yes. Also, to all of our listeners, we love getting messages from you guys, questions. If more of you want to follow Sue and send us emails with questions or even just DM us, we'd be so happy to give our advice, even though who are we to give advice, but whatever. (laughs) (laughs) We're disqualifying ourselves. But But you know, it's like like, you know, like the tagline of my advice column is she's made all the mistakes so you don't have to. So like if you've made mistakes and any area, then I feel like you probably have some good advice because oh, of the mistakes you I'm made. I'm the best at making <laughs> mistakes. I feel like we I'm both so good at making mistakes. Yeah. You guys all come to me with your questions. <laughs> I'm like the queen of mistakes. Okay, do you want to read it? Yeah, sure. Okay, don't mention where she's from. Uh, okay. Um, so <laughs> trying to keep it lucky with the person. The, the title of the email is Boy Texting Problem Question, <laughs> which I love. Okay. Hi. I am, can I say her age? Is yeah, that yeah. I'm a 21-year-old girl, and I've recently been on two dates with different boys. I only went on first dates with both guys, and on both dates with the two different guys, we ended up hooking up, in quotes, everything but sex. Uh, both these guys are horrible texters, even from the beginning, but after the first date and hooking up, their texting became even worse. Uh, one of them stopped texting me even, and the other has been taking few days in between the texts to respond. I'm just laughing because the amount of times this has happened to me and all of my friends. Okay, I was interested in both guys. 
Uh, but I am more interested in the second guy who takes a few days to respond to texts. I'm not sure how I can get him to text back at a normal speed of rate or if he is just trying to ghost and how to ask him out for a second date. Also, it is okay. Uh, is it okay to request them on Instagram without them giving their Instagram to me? Love the podcast. Oh, thank you for loving the podcast. <laughs> um, and thank you. Okay, so... Uh, first thing that I'd like to say is nobody's a horrible texter like everyone's always on their phone everyone's always looking at their phone they see your text right away they did not see it. unless their phone fell in the ocean <laughs> there's no reason for them to answer you days later I'll tell you like I'm just gonna be as harsh I, I my friends always tell me I'm very harsh but I think that people just need the truth if they're coming to me for like mushy gushy sugar-coated advice like that's not gonna help we're you we're both that people that's why it's like fucked up <laughs> um, <laughs> But if I sugarcoat things, it's just not going to help you. Because most of your friends are probably sugarcoating things and telling you, like, oh, my God, he does like you. Look, he answers you day late, days later because he thought of you. Like, no. Okay, I answer guys days later when they text me when I'm trying to get them to understand that I just don't want to talk to them. Also, you're 21. Like, they can't be that busy. I don't know if they're the same age. It's like, what the fuck else are they doing? They're yeah. 21. They <laughs> but, could respond. But, like, personally, if guys are texting me and I am answering days later, it's because when they text me, I look at my phone, I go, oh, oh my God, this person's texting me again. And then I just forget about it because I really don't want to answer. And then days later, I see their name again and I see I didn't respond. I'm like, oh shit, I feel so bad for not responding. I'm going to respond just to be nice, but I do not want to talk to this person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just what I do because I am, as I've stated in one of our last episodes, I in 2020, I'm coming to realize that I am a fuckboy. I am matcha. <laughs> I am kickboxing. I am all the things. So I am a fuckboy, and that is what I do. Um, okay, well, so just, like, this is also important to address. I mean, sometimes it happens where you'll go on a first date with someone, you end up hooking up, and, like, it happens, and it won't actually affect, like, the the course of the relationship, if it, and, like, it could turn into something serious. But, like, I don't know if you did everything but had sex and both of them didn't respond or like they've just kind of they've slowed down on responses like I think it could be that I mean that that was just all they were looking for and they they got it and um I mean it it has nothing to do with you um it just has to do with them and they're not serious people and they're not respectful so I think it's just like if it's hard to at that age to like gauge a guy's intentions like it's it's really hard like I messed up so much at that age but to just like try to be more mindful of like who you share your body with and if you do and um and you you want to and you like you just want to have a sexual experience own that but at the same time be aware that like you could be sexual with someone and also feel romantic and then they just won't feel anything and they won't respond to your text messages yeah I mean I think that you know, it goes back to that, like, thing of, like, he's just not that into you. But, like, that's it. Like, if somebody is into you, you know. Yeah. If By you way, have don't to... request them on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, don't request them no. on Instagram because that just... Uh, they're probably already, if they're Persian, they're doodle tell us for sure. Because all Persian men are. And then you're just feeding into their, I'm so great, my dick is gold, uh, I am a gift from God, like, mentality. Don't feed, don't feed it. Don't request them on Instagram. Here's the thing, is that, like, don't beat yourself up too hard about hooking up with them because whatever like my husband and I hooked up before we ever had a first date we were friends and hooked up and then started dating so I feel like if something is right like there's nothing really you can do in in terms of like that kind of stuff to fuck it up and if it's 
not meant to be. There's nothing you could have done to like play it exactly right. Yeah, definitely. The thing is, and I think you kind of touched on this, is that um, if you are worried about this kind of thing repeating, it is better to kind of like get to know somebody a little bit first because then you'll be able to gauge whether or not this is somebody that's interested in more than just hooking up. Mm-hmm. Um, and just move on. You're 21. Like, you deserve so much more. You're so young. You have, there's going to be way more sure jerks like this in your future. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, I always say to people, like, if your friend or your sister or daughter was telling you about this guy, would this be your ideal relationship for them? No. You yeah. wouldn't want them to be treated like this. So even if this... Let's say that, like, against all, everything we've said, we're wrong and this guy is into you. Why would you want to be with somebody that is, like, a shitty slow texter like that? It's Thanks just, like, that's annoying. Like, if he is into her, then he has other issues. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he just doesn't know how to spell and it just takes him days to check the spelling of each word. Like, maybe he's just trying really hard to text you, like, with the correct spelling. Who this knows? is just, like, you'll have many more dates, like, and... Oh, yeah. Don't waste any more energy. The good thing is, is that they pieced out really early on. You only invested one date with these people. They didn't leave you on. That's so you know they're. You don't want to. You don't. If you were to go out on a second date, this would just repeat itself, and you'd waste more time and energy. Yeah, yeah. Just like be happy that it ended this early. Like yeah, yeah, you saved a lot of time and energy and. Yeah, you can find something better. That's yeah. that's our conclusion. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with what Aaron said that like if it was right, you literally can't do anything wrong. Like you could Yeah, none literally, of these I was I was just telling Aaron she took a sip from her water and she spilled it on her shoe. She like, completely <laughs> missed her mouth. And I was telling her I did that on a date in front on a first date. I I missed my own mouth. I couldn't drink right. And I was like, but like, listen, if he was into me, nothing I could do could be wrong. He'd be like, oh, that's so cute. You missed your mouth. You know, like he would think it's like endearing and adorable that I'm that ridiculous. Uh, but, if it's, <laughs> but if I'm the wrong person, anything I can do, he'll be like, oh, like she smells like roses. Ew, like bye. Like I don't want her. Like anything you can do is going to wow, be wrong if you're the wrong like person. <laughs> Female Google tell. <laughs> <laughs> like, you smell like roses. <laughs> Um, oh my! I totally smell like roses, and I look beautiful from the moment I wake up, and I'm just perfect. But I, I also personally feel like when I'm on a first date, if I'm attracted to the person, but I know I'll never have feelings for them, I'll be more willing to like hook up. But if I'm actually into them, I want to take things slower because I want to get to know them better on like a emotional level. So, so if you like the guy, maybe just stick to kissing, take it slow, and. Get to know them better emotionally, but like if you're not into them and you're just attracted to them, go for it. Like hook up, have fun. Yeah, and advice. then also then like what you said, Aaron. Like you can't really plan anything. Like sometimes you can do something and against all odds, like it yeah. just works out. Like yeah. those factors don't really matter. But like I don't know if you're 21, you're like seeing Persian guys. Just be like really cautious because yeah, yeah let's be real. <laughs> yeah, Persian or, girls are scary too. Like we'll yeah, honestly, we'll take that. We know that we're I, crazy. I know guys come to me for advice on Persian girls, and my advice is just don't, just okay. don't. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, yeah, I really don't recommend just, dating a Persian girl. Yeah, so. like I'm different because I'm amazing, but like just don't. <laughs> yeah, we're all we're all different. <laughs> only the ones here in this podcast. If, we're, the, we're the only good ones, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Well, you yeah. know, I maybe, well, this is interesting to tell Aaron. A lot of, like, 
girls come up to us and they're like, wow, that's so brave of you guys that you like talk about this I could things never right. do and such a thing. And your identity. Like, yeah. it's like, so they think, a lot of Persians think that me and Natalie have like blacklisted ourselves or like tainted. From like our, the Persian community. Yeah, we, from yeah. any Persian man will never touch yeah, you. Yeah, oh, they'll yeah. never want right. to marry us because I mean, wow, we, we talk about these things even. Right. We think about these things. I just realized, is it okay that I like, Cursed. Oh no! Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. I usually ask. I usually ask before I do it, so that I know. You know, because sometimes like people want to ha- don't want to have to put it explicit or whatever. Our first episode, the name is "Like a Virgin Fucked for the Millionth Time." Oh, okay. Time. I mean, we, we shortened it now. It's just "Like a Virgin" right. with quotation marks. But yeah, that was our first episode. <laughs> Um, just for the record, girls, I get asked out all the time. <laughs> no, I talk about my, I, I want guys to listen to my podcast. Right. When I talk to guys on dating apps, I'm like, yeah, like, I'm really proud of my podcast. You should listen to it. If you're not into it, don't ask me out. Like, I'm, I'm so proud. This is my baby. I'm so proud of it. You should be. I mean, yeah. that's the thing is that, like, again, if anybody, like, any guy, Persian or otherwise, is going to not date you because of this, it's not somebody you would want to date exactly. anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. then if I'm hiding this and, like, they don't really want to date me. Yeah. No. If One of our early no. guests, she said, um, my, like, your vibe attracts your tribe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I'm worried about... That's a 2020 way to say it. <laughs> I'm worried about that. Like, what is... What is our tribe? What is my vibe? Like, <laughs> what is my vibe? A lot of girls are saying they're attracting the wrong guys. Maybe you need to change your vibe. <laughs> you know? Vibe check. Okay, I think we need to stop. <laughs> it's like mic check, but vibe check. Okay, yeah, vibe just check forget it. Much. Forget those guys. Move on. Yes, and... that's our advice. Forget them. And if you're worried about, you know, whether or not, knowing whether or not somebody is into you for, like, something more substantial, then wait a little bit just so that you protect your own heart. Yeah. And then we'll also Agreed. link Aaron's um, advice column. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you guys liked her response better, <laughs> you can ask her if you think me and Natalie are jokes. <laughs> Fine. I mean, we are jokes, but, but we would still love to get more questions. Yeah, you can you email guys can us email or DM us. We have so much, you know, love for all of our listeners, and like we'd love to help you in any way. Yeah. Though well, I, I don't know if we're helping, but whatever. What's you know? the like the, pl- the rule on the planes? Like help yourself before you help others. We're not doing that. Oh yeah, we're I don't know how. To Myself. I'm really good at giving advice, just not good at taking it. I'm very stubborn. Um, as Millie mentioned in our last episode, I'm, what did you call me? Hard headed and stubborn? Something and I never like admit that. I'm wrong? Something like that. What, regi- what region is your family from? <laughs> <laughs> Astrology. Astrology. (laughs) Where's your family from? (laughs) All right. We'll see you guys next week. Or hopefully. We'll see. We'll We'll see you when we see you. (laughs) Two kinds of bacon and all kinds of delicious. Say hello to Donato's new bacon duo pizzas. Two pizzas each with two kinds of bacon. Try the new pepperoni bacon duo with pepperoni, Canadian bacon, and hardwood smoked bacon. And the Chipotle Bacon Duo with Canadian bacon and Chipotle seasoned bacon. Now get $2 off a large bacon duo or any large pizza. Use promo code 2. Donato's. Every piece is important.
Donato's just didn't add bacon to their pizzas. They added bacon to their bacon. It's Donato's new Bacon Duo pizzas. Two pizzas, each with two kinds of bacon. Try the new Pepperoni Bacon Duo with pepperoni, Canadian bacon, and hardwood smoked bacon. And the Chipotle Bacon Duo with Canadian bacon and Chipotle seasoned bacon. Now get $2 off a large Bacon Duo or any large pizza. Use promo code 2. Donato's. Every piece is important.